Glad you're listening. <clears throat> Excuse me. Glad you're with us. We're listening to Money Talks right now, and Lance Roberts joins me. Very pleased to have with him. Excited to have him back on the show with so much to talk about. Chief Investment Strategist, Clarity Financial. Uh, Lance, first of all, appreciate you ta- taking the time. And I thought maybe you could just set the stage for us right now for investors. I mean, that was one heck of a January when you talk about levels of volatility and, you know, rumors coming back and forth, Federal Reserve, not Federal Reserve. I mean, the list is a long one, but it's a difficult environment for investors. Well, it absolutely is right now. And the problem is, is that what investors have been used to over the last several years is kind of the steady climb in asset prices. And whenever there's been some volatility, the Federal Reserve has always been very quick to jump in, provide some cool common words and some monetary accommodation. The problem for investors now is, is that we have entered into an earnings recession, primarily due to a sharply rising dollar. The Federal Reserve is tightening monetary policy, which extracts liquidity from the markets. And, of course, we have the collapse in oil prices, which obviously isn't helping the U.S. or Canada at this point. So investors are really having a tough time trying to figure out where to go to next. Absolutely. I mean, that's the question. Uh, you know, and, it's, and so much of it is predicated on actions by government or certainly, certainly the Federal Reserve or other central banks. And, of course, we're not party to that information. You know, when Japan, for example, launches a week and a half ago, whatever it was, you know, negative interest rates, the market had a monstrous reaction. Well, Certainly nobody from the Bank of Japan phoned me before they did that. <laughs> well, what was interesting about that in particular was is that they, uh, Abe Kuroda, who is the, uh, the head of Japan, came out just a week prior to that and said they weren't even considering negative rates. So for them to come out a week later and go into actual negative interest rate territory, it shocked the markets. And that was when he had the, such a strong rally on Friday. But the problem was it didn't carry through very long because the realization is, is Negative interest rates really aren't good for economic growth, and they certainly aren't good for investors long term. Yeah, that's one of my things that, you know, we've got 15 countries by my last count that have gone negative interest rates. And I still I sort of want to grab people. Do you get what a change that is? You know, (laughs) like, how can we keep pretending it's business as usual when you get something so stark that no one could have even imagined, say, going back six, seven years that that was even possible? Well, exactly. And here's what's even more interesting than that is you're absolutely right. Now, 15 countries are currently running negative interest rates. A bunch more are basically at zero. And here we are in the U.S. sitting there going, well, we're going to raise rates four times in 2016. You know, the problem is, is that the United States economy and and, in particular, and we're talking about the U.S. now, is that we have done a tremendous job with quantitative easing and these direct injections into the economy to drag forward future consumption. And the other side of that is that we've seen this kind of detachment in services spending related or relative to manufacturing, which is primarily the impact of higher health care costs because of the Affordable Care Act that is skewing some of the economic data. So Every, you know, there's this, there's this belief by the Fed that we can remain an economic island of growth within a, a worldwide global economic slowdown. Everybody else is a race to the bottom to lower currencies and lower interest rates to try to stimulate some growth. And here's the Fed going, hey, we're going to tighten monetary policy and slow everything down. This ends badly if the Federal Reserve does not get a grip on the data and start to revise what their projections are. 
Yeah, and where does that leave investors, though? I mean, I, I was just alluding to the fact that I, I've been sort of uh, advising a big cash position for months, and that's just really because uh, I felt there's a higher level of uncertainty. The probabilities of, of, of correction were there, not that I knew. But the other thing is, you know, this is sort of a preserve-your-capital kind of time. But it, that's not an easy thing to do when you say, tell someone, hey, you know what, I like to have a lot of cash. Good, so you can earn zero, you know, <laughs> so you can earn 1%. Well, so it's know, a tough it, time. It, it, well, it is. It is a tough time. But, you know, one thing that investors need to remember is that just because we don't earn something on cash doesn't mean that it's not a good idea. I'm, myself, I absolutely agree with you. We've been at 50% cash since May of last year. Um, we've had zero energy exposure since the middle of, four, of 2014 because we saw the, the energy crisis that was coming because of the supply demand imbalance. And I live in Houston, by the way, uh, just, you know, the energy capital of the world. So, you know, I've you know, I, we saw this coming a long time before it happened. But the issue is, is I get the same question from clients and same thing from investors and people who read the website at realinvestmentadvice.com. Sorry, shameless plug. Um, you know, that, you know, I can't just hold it in cash. I'm losing money to inflation. You're not. Inflation is a long-term impact to money. If you're going to stick it under a mat- mattress, yes, you're going to lose money to inflation. But there are times, like now, that holding cash, even though it earns zero, is better than losing money. And it's the, it's the preservation of capital that allows us ultimately to buy things cheaper down the road to make money with. And that time isn't now. And, and we'll talk about in a second the fact why I believe that we're about to enter a pretty major cyclical bear market. I'm talking with Lance Roberts. He's Chief Portfolio Strategist, Economist for Clarity Financial. He also does the Lance Roberts Show and Chief Editor of Real Investment Advice. Uh, Lance, you know, you just mentioned about that. You know, the two things I want to come back to is, one, you live in Houston. Two, uh, you look at the kind of uh, bear market kind of throwing. So do you have an outlook on oil or, or an opinion on oil at this point? Well, like I said, you know, I live here in Houston, and, of course, uh, a majority of the people that uh, live in Houston, you know, either, either are directly impacted by or work for a major oil company of some sort. The issue is is that the supply-demand imbalance is grossly out of whack at the moment because of the shell fracking revolution, which just pumped a tremendous amount of, of reserves into the system. Those wells are still producing at this point. We, the, the shut-ins have not occurred to any great degree at this point, and so the production of oil is still stagnant at this point. We haven't seen any, we've seen a lot of drop in the number of rig counts, but we haven't seen a drop really in the production rate of oil. So and so there's a real possibility that we're going to see some sharp rebounds in oil prices, kind of like we saw last week, but they're going to be transitory. Oil is probably going to work its way into the mid-20s to low-20s ultimately before we get to a bottom. And the bottom will be marked by a very sharp sell-off in oil prices, uh, you know, almost a collapse-type scenario over the course of a couple of days. And that'll mark the bottom, and that's where we'll start to come up. But you've got to get a lot of these option players out of the market. Hedges are going to roll off in about another four months. A lot of the debt defaults for oil companies are going to start showing up this summer. We're going to see quite a bit of consolidation within the energy sector between a lot of the smaller players into larger players. And here's the real problem. A lot of people were buying master limited partnerships, MLPs, because they believed that they were detached from oil prices and there was no risk. That has proven to be grossly incorrect. As I was stating about a year and a half ago, that was very dangerous. The problem now is is that 
companies that are, that spun off these MLPs are going to be looking for cash flow. They are going to revert those MLPs back into the company to get that cash flow back into the corporate uh, income stream, which is going to leave a lot of these MLP, MLP players at big losses when that occurs. So be very careful if you own MLPs. I'm talking with Lance Roberts. You can find more at realinvestmentadvice.com, which one, uh, no spaces, realinvestmentadvice.com. I'm going to come back with Lance. There's a couple other things on the agenda. Uh, one is, really, how strong is that U.S. economy? What does it mean for their interest rates? We've got to check in on the dollar. That's been a big issue, obviously, alluding to it earlier uh, with Michael Levy. So much to talk to with Lance Roberts. Stay with us. You're listening to Money Talks. Remember, you can go to moneytalks.net. You can re-listen to anything we're doing here today. Uh, and uh, there's so much more. There's a daily business comment, et cetera, et cetera. So I hope you take advantage of that and really start doing it. I'll have to come to your house and give you a bad time otherwise. Lance Roberts is on the line with me. Uh, there's just so much to talk about, Lance, when we get into this. But I wanted to come to just a, a big question. I know it, but it's the state of the U.S. economy. I mean, it's sort of been fits and starts. Yes, it's better than what's going on in France and China, et cetera. But, I mean, one of the, pre- uh, one of the premises of we're going to raise interest rates by the Federal Reserve was that there's going to be a re- there is an ongoing recovery in the states. But, man, is it ever uh, fits and starts? Well, it is. And, again, as I was uh, addressing earlier, you know, if you take a look at these services data and, and take a lot of the uh, personal consumption expenditures that come out, they go, well, personal consumption is still doing great, even though manufacturing on every front is in a recession. Um, we have a profits recession going on with corporations, partly due to a stronger dollar, but also due to less consumption. If we take a look at imports as an example, you know, a strong dollar should actually be a benefit to consumers because we can buy stuff that we buy from China and Japan and other countries cheaper because of the stronger dollar. So that means imports should be going up, even though exports, because of the stronger dollar, do decline. We're not seeing that at all. Not only are exports plummeting, but we're also seeing imports plummet as well. Just take a look at the recent restaurant and uh, restaurant index, which took a very sharp dive over the last month. Because consumers are simply just running out of money. But wait a second, why is services spending so strong? Well, once we strip down and we dig into the personal consumption number, which for the U.S. economy is 70% of the economy is just consumption. Personal consumption expenditures grew in the health services spending area by 50. In other words, half of the growth in spending last year was specifically due to health-related spending. And that is due to the onset of the Affordable Care Act, which has spiraled insurance premiums higher. Health care costs have risen markedly because of the the, the effects of the Affordable Care Act. And, of course, we have an increase in the Medicare tax on investments as well, which has increased all of these related services. Well, the problem with that is, is that spending on those type of items don't actually circulate back into the economy to buying stuff like iPads and new cars and phones and these type of things that help produce economic growth. And that's why you're seeing this big divergence between the manufacturing and the services side of the economy. It's illusory, and this is the problem that's, that the Fed is running into, despite their, their idea that the economy is going strongly underneath the surface is a rot that is beginning to, to really gain traction here that will likely see the U.S. in a recession by the end of this year. 
Wow. I mean, and the implication, again, for interest rates are there. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, as I said, we've been talking about uh, countries going negative. Let me ask you this. I look at the January barometer, and I know that's just one sort of straightforward, even simplistic kind of indicator. But it looks like I know you've been doing some work on, okay, when you get such a weak performance in January, the odds are kind of stacked against invest- investors when you look at history, when you look at what will February do. Yeah, well, not only that, uh, about 70% of the time that January is negative, February is also negative. Um, and statistically speaking, when January, the month of January is negative, 75% of the time, the entire year has been negative. Now, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that it's, it's going to be, you know, sharply negative, but it just does, it does mean that odds are at this point that growth is going to be somewhat weak in the markets this year. Well, so let's let's go to investors at this point. You know, with that, that's a great backdrop for what we're facing here. I mean, we can throw in the word volatility, obviously, every week. Uh, you know, and I know this is a very broad question. Everybody's got to know what their individual circumstances are financially, but also emotionally, their risk tolerance, et cetera, et cetera. But in a broad brush kind of way, what kind of considerations does someone who's looking at a portfolio or maybe even thinking, I'm sitting on cash, what to do? Well, okay, so two things. First of all, let's, let's, let's separate this into two points. First of all, as investors, we have a goal to grow our money over time so that we can acquire wealth for our retirement years. Wall Street in general has told everybody you have to beat a ran- some random benchmark index. You've got to beat the S&P 500 every year. Otherwise, you need to move your money to somewhere else, hopefully them. Uh, so they can sell you some more products. This is all very profitable for Wall Street, not so much for the actual individual investor. Over the last five years, we've had a surging financial market. If you've participated at all, you've made really good money. And, and if your goal over time is to have a 6 or 7% rate of return, whatever the number is that you need to reach your retirement goal, you are far ahead of that goal right now. So – Stepping back into cash, we take a look at the fundamentals of the market. We're, we're moving into an earnings recession, profits recession. Um, we have extremely high valuations, historically speaking. Forward rates of return on an inflation-adjusted basis over the next 20 years, because of where valuations are right now, have historically been negative. So in other words, if you put your money in the market, turn away, and come back in 20 years, it is very likely at this point, based on valuations, you will have lost money on an inflation-adjusted basis. So holding cash at this point, as I was saying earlier, is not a bad thing until we get an opportunity where the potential for making money is more in our favor than it is now. Right now, and I was saying earlier, I was going to tell you, when we look back at the previous two bull market peaks in 2000 and in 2008, we are seeing the exact same price action occurring in the market now that we saw back then, combined with high valuations and an earnings recession. All of these tell you, when you line all these up, and I write about this every week, and I just went through a big piece in this weekend's newsletter, which you can find at the website, is that the similarities between 2007, 2008, and today are strikingly similar. That does not mean that we're going to have another financial crisis but it does mean that if any of the historical precedents continue to play out, that we could see a 27 to a 35% decline at minimum from, from the peaks of this year, which would be very well in line with a normal economic recession-type slowdown in the markets. So if you don't want to suffer that, sit in cash, and we'll have an opportunity to put that money to work. And you and I are going to talk about this over time, and when we see that opportunity, we'll let everybody know. But today is not that day.
Yeah, and the warning signals are flashing. I also always love to ask, uh, what are they worried about by being in cash? What's your big worry, that you're going to miss out on something? Because I'll tell you, missing out on something sure beats being in the loss column because, I mean, that's the biggest thing. If you don't protect your capital, you're in trouble. You're always going to have something to make up for. And it's a long game, as you say, Lance. Uh, we can mm. afford to miss out on some of the great buys if we indeed <laughs> haven't missed them as uh, you know, by, by being able to play the game later because we protected our capital. Exactly. Look, at the bottom line, our job is very simple, is to buy, high, to, uh, buy low and sell high. What Wall Street never tells you is, is they never tell you to sell anything because – they don't want you to take money out of what they're charging you a fee on. But the, the reality is, is if you don't sell high, if you don't sell at some point, how are you ever going to be able to buy low because you have no capital to invest with? Yeah. No, it's as I say, it's a dangerous environment. Uh, so much to talk about in this, Lance. I, I appreciate very much you finding time for us uh, sure. this weekend. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's terrific stuff. And I'll just advise people, go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Lance writes uh, on a daily basis there. He's uh, editor-in-chief of that, but he's also chief investment strategies for Clarity Financial. Lance Roberts, thanks so much. My pleasure. Great stuff. I got to take a break. I got the shocking stat come up, but first I got to remind you, at the end of today, we're doing a seminar, uh, webinar, I should call it, pardon me. It's a webinar on... uh, on options trading. This is something that last uh, week at the uh, Outlook Conference on Sunday, we had a master's micro course, macro master's course done by Patrick Serizna, Jason Ayers on the Learn to Trade Global. It's about options. Well, a lot of people emailed saying, obviously, I wasn't at the conference. I'd love to do it. So it's absolutely free. But we only have on the webinar platform we use, you can only go to 500 people for doing that. It's a very straightforward thing. This sold out at the Outlook Conference. You just go to moneytalks.net and you click on the banner there, moneytalks.net. Very simple to do, but we're going to start that right at the end of this show. So it's uh, Learn to Trade. It's about options. Uh, Patrick and Jason will be there to follow through the kind of seminar they did at the World Outlook Conference. I think you're going to find it really valuable. And as I say, hey, the best thing, it's absolutely free. So you can go ahead and do that. Just go to moneytalks.net. And, of course, as you say, uh, you can go there anytime, and you can re-listen to anything on the show, go back in time. I hope you're listening to the business comments, though. I mean, not that you'll agree with them. In fact, some people will vehemently disagree, but it changes the debate. We desperately need to change the debate. The other thing is my midweek Money Talks uh, interview, where I get interviewed, is also on the site, plus new articles every day. So go to moneytalks.net. I'll take a break. I'll come back. I've got a shocking stat for you, plus Aussie Jerk, plus Victor Adair. Stay with us. I was just sitting here thinking, I have really sucked today. Thank goodness we've had some good guests, Michael Levy, uh, Tyler Bullhorn, and, of course, Lance Roberts. But I'm going to do my best to come out in the last half hour strong here. And I'm going to start with my shocking stat. I've got two types. I've got some fun ones, and I've got ones that are more serious. So let me start with the fun ones. Super Bowl weekend. Here's a test question for you. The number of 300-pound-plus players who played in the original Super Bowl, players who weighed over 300 pounds. How many do you think? The answer is zero. How about this year's Super Bowl? Well, they got 27 playing. I found that incredible. Here's a fun a couple of stats for you, though, on this. The most extent, expensive ticket in 1967 for the game was $12. Now, if you do the sort of inflation-adjusted math there, that's $85 in small change 
you know, today's dollars, but it was $12 or $85.64. How about last year's highest price ticket, 1900 bucks U.S.? But here's the one I thought was really fun. Resale tickets on game day, okay? Last year, scalpers were getting up to $10,000 on the day of the Super Bowl. Okay, first Super Bowl ever, 1967. How much do you think scalpers were getting on the game day? Two bucks. That's it. Do the inflation-adjusted numbers, and you're at $14.97. I thought that was a lot of fun. Anyways, uh, let's go on to a more serious, shocking stat on this. You know, since 2010, I think people are blown away by this, because, of course, the Keystone Pipeline uh, garnered phenomenal amounts of attention. You know, about 900 kilometers, et cetera, there. But huge amounts of attention there. The U.S. has built, though, since the time that sort of went to the State Department, President Obama opposes Keystone, but 19,000 kilometers of brand new pipelines were built in the States. When I do the math, that's something like 13 different Keystone XLs. That's incredible to me. And it just shows, you know, and I, I mentioned this stat earlier in a business comment. I think it aired on Friday. And it's really interesting, the response. You've got the same people who tell me they care about the environment are mad at me for pointing out the hypocrisy of what's going on in the U.S. this way, pointing out that the U.S. administration under President Obama is supporting an $18 billion pipeline in Kenya, for example, while opposing the Keystone XL, that they have put 19,000 kilometers of brand-new pipelines in the U.S., without opposition from the administration, but they did the Keystone XL. The other thing that's incredible that most Canadians don't appreciate is the U.S. is exporting about 700,000 barrels a day to eastern Canada. Who do you think benefits that we can't get our oil from Alberta to international markets? Well, I'll tell you, you can debate the environmental aspects of it, but you can't debate this. It's U.S. oil oil producers. The same year that they've removed the ban on oil exports in the States, building 19,000 kilometers since 2010, yeah, they can't do Keystone. As I say, that'll anger some people, but I'm just presenting the facts here. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Ozzy Jurek on the line. Hot Properties. You're listening to Money Talks. Uh, had a sold-out World Outlook Conference last week. Uh, standing room only. The biggest problem we had at the conference is there was not enough chairs, and uh, we're trying to uh, certainly remedy that for next year, but also uh, acknowledge that for the people who had, uh, didn't have seating. And the problem was Ozzy Jurek. Well, he's holding a seminar this coming Wednesday and Thursday. It's not both days. It's a two-hour seminar. Each one of a two-hour seminar, you can go either Wednesday or Thursday uh, as a two-hour workshop. For more information, you go to realestate2016.ca, realestate2016.ca. Ozzy, you can't get enough. My goodness gracious, man. Well, it was. It showed, though, uh, Mike, as you said, that the interest in real estate uh, was astounding. I was standing on Omni right into the hallways, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it shows that the, the mad, mad real estate world that we're living in um, has just continued and everybody is interested in terms of what's going to happen. But I want to salute you. I mean, to get that many people out, I mean, an all-time record. I mean, I've been there over 20 years and I've never seen anything like it. The room was yeah. packed from one end to the other, as were all the workshops. 
Yeah, and great stuff. And by the way, if you couldn't go, you can still purchase the video. It's online right now, so you have to sign in. You have to pay for it. But you can go to moneytalks.net for that. Ozzy, let me just, uh, a couple of things. One, of the, one fact that, you know, we've had a big debate about foreign ownership in Canada, especially, obviously, when you concentrate it in the Vancouver and the Toronto markets. But here's the thing. Canadians don't seem to understand that we are the second biggest buyers in Australia, the number one buyer in the U.S. by terms of numbers of transactions. Uh, not yeah. in the dollar thing, because we're not buying the 10 million plus properties. But when it comes just the number of sort of residential homes being bought, and of course you're well aware of that, having done a ton of research and work and hands-on stuff down in certain areas of the states. But Canadians don't seem to get that, how prominent this is. So it's pretty tough to say, hey, we should do this to all sorts of foreign buyers, not understanding that, hey, we're the big buyers down there. And that's what I wanted to talk about today is some of the implications of if you are one of those buyers, you know, you bought something down in Phoenix, you bought something in Palm Desert or, you know, on the Florida side of things. Uh, there's some definite things that we want to put on their radar screen in terms of taxation. Yeah, no question. I think John Maynard Keynes said that the avoidance of taxes is the only intellectual pursuit that still carries any reward. <laughs> well, <laughs> one thing is that there are some taxes in the U.S. you might not have thought about. I mean, since 2011, CKNW listeners have invested in the U.S. Uh, quite dramatically in, in some cases. And we know that we have to file U.S. taxes, we have to file Canadian taxes, and we also know that most taxes that we pay in the U.S. can be offset against what you have to pay in Canada, provided that you invested in the right kind of company in the first place, like an can, LLC. Can I just ask you on that for yeah. one sec? So yeah. let's say I went down and I bought a condo, a personal use condo in one of those uh, sunspots. Yeah. Do I still have to, and so I'm not renting it. I'm just owning it and I go down three months a year or something. Uh, you know, pay my full expenses, of course. Yeah. But do I still have to file something in the U.S. then? No. If you don't okay. have any income, then you don't. So we're talking about if you do accrue any income, boy, I'll tell you, the IRS, we've mentioned this before, but there, people have to understand there's no more aggressive re revenue kind of agency in the Western world than what goes on in the U.S. And they're going to find you and get you. So we're talking to people who may rent, uh, you know, who rent out their property. Yeah, and, and the thing is, don't work on your property either if you rent it out, because you're offside. You know, you're upset. Your homeland will actually come after you. You're not allowed to 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 work on your property. But if you own it as a secondary home, that's a different story. But okay. you know, a lot of those investors they now have are in profit. We're happy. We have capital gain. But they forget that maybe the hundred thousand that they invested in Canadian dollars at a dollar two, that happens to be now worth a dollar forty or so, and that's a thirty-five percent gain that we feel very happy about, but it's taxable. The currency gain is taxable. Yeah, that's that's a very big key. So uh, when I buy it then, Ozzy, and I'm a Canadian taxpayer, obviously, so let's say I bought it in 2000, this time 2013, when basically we're still at par. So I pay 100 grand, and now I sell it this year for 100 grand U.S. again. Well, obviously, that's now worth uh, 1,400 Canadian, so that 400 bucks is i got to pay on that. Absolutely. And, and the thing is that uh, even if you keep the money in the U.S., in U.S. dollars, and invest it in another property, it's also taxable. You have to report the capital gain on the CD1, T1 return, okay. uh, the Canadian one, and by converting it and basing it on the U.S.-Canadian spot rate on the date that the property was sold. And, of course, again, any U.S. state taxes will be credited against Canadian tax payable, but the capital gain will have to be taken in income and paid taxes on and then, you know, so I, I, I own something, I sold it, and then bought something else. 
then it, all that, and I, so it doesn't matter that I bought something else. I still got to report the gain, and then my new property is again treated as a separate transaction. In other words, that's right. And and uh, that's and, and remember, I'm not an accountant, and and so certainly make sure you go see your own expert accountant. We're using Robert Clegg up here, who's who's given us uh, great advice, and uh, we have him on our website. You can take a look there. But the point is that every tax, every every person that files, it's also different individual with different circumstances, so make sure, sure. that you do. But certainly you, you, there are some twists. You could uh, elect, I think, in some cases, to use the spot rate when you converted the money down there and when you brought it back, or elect to have maybe the annual prevailing rate at the time and uh, to try and, and make it mitigate your, um, your yeah. income. And again, Revenue Canada sets that rate. Uh, you know, if you go in your tax form, you don't have to go back to every individual tax, uh, U.S.-related, whether it's stocks or it could be a property in this case. Uh, they'll, they'll have a prescribed rate. And as you say, Ozzy, you just check that out. If that prescribed rate is more attractive to you, in other words, lowers the size of your gain compared yeah. to what the, where it in the day, then take it. But your big advice there is, and I really agree, you're just alert, uh, alerting people. Go see a tax expert on this baby, and that's yeah, something the Canadians have too to do. Much. I mean, open some champagne and pay the capital gains. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I keep saying to my, my my subscribers, "Hey, my goal is to pay a million in taxes." <laughs> yeah. Well, you're going to get that. <laughs> I think you want to clarify that and say your goal is to pay a million in capital gains taxes. Yeah. Oh okay. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hot property, quickly. Yeah, we have an 18 condos in Phoenix for 1,495,000, 83,000 a condo. They're 18 individual title, private balconies, new roof, granite countertops, stainless steel uh, appliances, and so on, gated community. And they were selling for 142,000 nine years ago, and there's a proposed development next door. Cap rate is 7%. Looks like a hot property to us. Great stuff. And, of course, for all of that, Ozzy just pointing out stuff that he sees that he finds uh, really interesting. And go to juroc.com, J-U-R-O-C-K.com. And a reminder that this coming Wednesday, you're in Vancouver. Uh, so Wednesday and Thursday, two separate days, the same seminar, though. It's a two-hour workshop. Go to realestate2016.ca to sign up. Real estate, it's, it's free, by the way. Yep. Uh, realestate2016.ca, go and sign up there. You can see Ozzy Wednesday and Thursday evening. And if you're a real fan, you'll go both days. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, Ozzy, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Good stuff. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Victor Dare live from the trading desk. Coming up, we've got a live webinar right after the show. All you have to do go is money, moneytalks.net. We're talking about the kind of environment you're dealing with, the fundamentals, and on to using the option market. Uh, it's going to be excellent. We did it at the World Outlook Conference. We couldn't get enough people in there, so we said we would do one free after the show today. So just go to moneytalks.net, click on the banner there, and you can uh, get it there. Uh, and, uh, and again, learn something for free. Victor Dare joins me on the line right now, live from the trading desk. Vic, my big question has been about the U.S. dollar. As we've chronicled, and I think very accurately on this show over a number of years, you figure out what the U.S. dollar is doing, and then you'll tell you what gold's going to do, what you know, oil's going to do, obviously the Canadian dollar, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's a key component there. And I wanted to get your perspective on that now. Like, are we seeing just a correction? I mean, my God, it had been a relentless up move in the U.S. dollar index, which, you know, goes against a basket of currencies dominated so much by the euro. But even against the Canadian dollar, uh, you know, I don't think a correction is a big surprise. You know, sort of take a rest from that move. 
Michael, the uh, U.S. dollar rallied about 37% from the lows it had back in 2011 to the highs that we had in 2015. I had posted a piece on uh, moneytalks.net back around Christmas time, and also we talked about it on the show here. I think the U.S. dollar had a double top in 2015, and uh, to make it short and sweet, I think it's possible we could see a call it a 7 to 10% correction down in the U.S. dollar from the highs that we had in 2015, which were about par. This week, the U.S. dollar did drop, let's say, about 4% or so from its highs. <clears throat> we, had the, we dropped to a four-month low, and this is all about <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> a, a, a change in sentiment in okay, what the central me... banks are doing. Yeah, but let's. I want to come back to this because there's a big question that I left out. I wrote a little piece myself on it, and uh, I forgot to say I'm still very bullish long term on the U.S. dollar. I don't see enough evidence for me to change that. I see this as a normal correction after really a significant move since August, or you can go back to sort of March 2014 into that big move into uh, I think it was May 2015. You know this relentless up move. You know the fact that we correct that we sort of take a rest is not a surprise. So I want to know: Are you still sort of of the view that long term you're a U.S. dollar bull? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. What we've had here is the U.S. dollar had been in this four-year bull market. A lot of bullish positions on the U.S. dollar bearish positions on other currencies, like the Canadian, had been built up. <clears throat> we got into a spot here over the last month or so where people changed their mind about how aggressive the Fed was going to be raising interest rates, and that set up what we call positioning risk. Guys who were short the euro, guys who were short the Canadian dollar, suddenly found themselves having to scramble to get out of their positions, and we had a V-shaped turn, a sharp rally in those other currencies. But longer term, yes, I do think the U.S. dollar is going higher. I only got time for a couple of seconds, uh, a quick comment here, Vic, and that is you look at the Canadian dollar coming off that 68 and a half or so. What kind of targets would you have on this correction for it? What numbers would you be looking at? Yeah, the Canadian dollar hit 68 cents around the 20th of January. We have already rallied about 7% or so. I kind of think we may have had the little pop in the Canadian dollar. Honestly, yeah. uh, I've been long the Canadian dollar. I'm, I've took some profits. I'm out of it, at least this bounce. And now I'm just sitting holding my long-term hedges where I own a lot of U.S. dollars. Yeah, and that's why I come back to the, the, the still the dominant trend until proven otherwise is a strong U.S. dollar. So the surprises will be for its resurgence, uh, you know, over some time here. Uh, Vic, thanks for taking the time. Have a great weekend. You too, Mike. Victor Adair, live from the trading desk. Time now for this week's Goofy. Remember, Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment, meaning the investors get paid first. There's no fees, and it's in the tech field. For more information, go to soleraclub.com. While they would never recognize it, let alone acknowledge it, the fawning, I think at times sycophantic media led by the CBC, is actually hurting their own journalistic reputation for impartiality when it comes to Justin Trudeau. I actually don't blame him, but I think it's going to hurt him in the end. I mean, it's just too much. We've ushered in this new era of emotional IQ, feelings first, political discourse. And again, that is led by the prime minister. But I think we're in a world that demands practical answers. But that's the big division right now. Symbolism versus practicality. Those that feast on symbolism, by the way, I suspect it's usually to make themselves feel better. And on the other side, there's those that demand practical answers. I'd be in that camp. 
So now fast forward to this week's. They have 10 individual so-called ordinary representative Canadians on the CBC uh, asking the prime minister, interviewing the prime minister. I'm like, come on, what the hell's going on there? We're only three and a half months past what was the longest election campaign in history, I think. Mr. Trudeau talked to thousands of Canadians. So what the heck did they need to do this for? You know, I, I just question the CBC. They put themselves in jeopardy here. Over 100 million promised more funding for Mr. Trudeau. I see too much cheerleading. So they present this Trudeau special, talking to ordinary Canadians. To what end? Really, what was the point? You know, do you think the Prime Minister's lacking kind of FaceTime on TV? Not enough coverage in the media, in magazines, and newspapers? Give me a break. The media's job's not to cheerlead for one side or another, at least the credible media's job. There was absolutely no substance to these discussions, no difficult exchanges, just a prime minister doing his best, Bill Clinton, I feel your pain. I mean, the entire exercise was not designed to provide any answers to anything, anyone, certainly not a serious policy discussion. It's got nothing to do with government. It was political theater. I love the National Post. Tasha Kirinden put it so well that theater's overtaken politics to the point where it passes for politics. That's my goofy award for the CBC. Hey, remember, the free webinar right now. Just go to moneytalks.net. Thanks for listening.